0: this morning, I had all intentions, just a little, you know, inside baseball as they say, I had all intentions of jumping back in this week uh, in our series in First Kings, or going through the books of the Kings, and yet for whatever reason, I was, I w- had referenced these particular verses, especially verses 8 and 9 of this particular chapter, Isaiah 55, and I just couldn't get them out of my head. It's like those songs that you hear on the radio and they just, you want to get them out of your head, but you can't get them out of your head, and so anyways, I just decided to do some studying, and I was just struck by this particular passage, especially verses 8 and 9, and how often, verses 8 and 9, you know, the, the famous declaration of the prophet Isaiah regarding the Lord, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, they're so much higher than ours, and, and, and just how often that we hear that phrase, or hear those truths in particular moments of life. And by which I mean, often I think these verses are associated with particular moments in life in which things are going bad. There's something confusing happening, something that is against rational or reasonable sense some uh, bout of suffering some really unexpected turn of trouble or grief or sorrow or loss and what is a very common response to those situations well god's thoughts aren't our thoughts his ways aren't our ways as if to uh, as if to say that that's what we should find comfort in and i believe that that is true for the most part but actually I think what I want to do this morning is is sort of just examine this chapter to see how we've actually removed the surprise that ought to be here when these verses pop up that's one thing that I have been somewhat adamant about is that oftentimes one of the best ways to read your bibles is to approach it as if you've never read it before Approach it as if you don't know the ending. You don't know how the story's going to turn out, because I guarantee you, it, it'll surprise you. The words of Scripture ought to surprise us at times. They ought to catch us off guard a little bit. They ought to. Uh, we ought to be astonished by what God is actually saying to us through these Scriptures. I think that's one of the keys to a really passionate devotional life is just that. Being surprised by what the Bible says. Because the less we let the Bible surprise us, I think the less we'll be in awe of what is God's greatest surprise for the world. His grace. It's that that truth of God, that aspect of God, that gift of God, that always comes as a surprise. And I think if we approach the scriptures as if... uh, I've heard this story a million times. (laughs) That that old phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. (laughs) Have you ever been there? Uh, Don't say this about me, but have you ever been in a sermon and the the preacher announces his sermon text and you can kind of like prejudge what he's going to preach about? (laughs) Maybe you've done that with me. It's okay. I won't hold that against you either. Uh, But it's fine. Uh, But we do that. I've done that too. I've done that. The, the the preacher gets up and he stands. And he says, "I'm going to preach from First Corinthians 13." And what do you automatically assume he's going to talk about? Love, charity, charity suffereth long, and all those sorts of things, and how we're supposed to be loving, and all that kind of stuff. And that's really good. We can. We, it's good to be familiar, I think, with certain texts. But I think sometimes uh, what we are the basis of our faith. It's the surprise that happens when it catches us off guard and we see, wow, look at that flash of grace that comes across the scene. I say all that to say, this a long, just meandering preamble to say that I think that this has happened with these particular verses. We get into somewhat of an autopilot reading. Of these verses as if just the fact that God thinks differently than us is alone something to find comfort in. And I think sometimes that's the case. But these verses don't just apply to when life is is baffling and when life is bad, when life is a struggle, when life uh, has gone not the way we thought it was supposed to go. These verses don't just apply to those moments. It's definitely true. But God's ways and thoughts are always higher than our ways and thoughts. And his plans are deeper so we can be sure that something else is is happening in those moments. But let's step back and ask the question. In what ways are God's thoughts higher? He says that. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But in what ways are his thoughts higher? And and what makes them higher thoughts? What does that even mean? What is that meant to be getting into our mind's eye? What is the prophet Isaiah bringing to bear through this word, through this message to these particular people? And why ought they to find that comforting? (laughs) Well, to answer that, what I want to do is just kind of situate... This particular chapter in the midst of all of Isaiah's prophecies here. Because I would say this is one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire prophetic messages of the prophet Isaiah. Of course, if you're familiar with the scriptures, if, if you've spent any time in the Old Testament, you will almost always have to come back to Isaiah. And in fact I think this is almost correct I don't don't quote me on this but I think there's some uh, 600 references or allusions to Isaiah's prophecy prophecy in the New Testament alone Through uh, either Jesus making specific reference to something that Isaiah preached or declared. Or uh, either through the apostles alluding to something that was declared in these prophetic messages. Only to say that this is a very important piece of prophecy. Through Three very broad, sweeping eras of Israel's history. Isaiah, the prophet, delivers words of reconciliation and judgment. Words of sin and deliverance. And he's giving them to the people of Israel before they were exiled. Of course, he's prophesying, prophesying about the fact that there's coming a day when you will be taken out and snatched back. And actually, he's giving them over and over this, this testimony of God's supreme providence over all of these things. And he's bringing to bear just this precise fact. Both the reason for their impending judgment, but also the hope that they can have in the redemption that comes through the Holy One of Israel himself. And of course, all of that hope, all of those things, the wonderful message of Isaiah is uniquely bound to this one who is introduced to us well, just a few chapters before this, this servant. The servant of Isaiah. You could also call him the root of Jesse, as he's called in, in the earlier chapters of Isaiah's prophecy. Of course, this is the Messiah. The one who would come and renew all of these things. Remake them, redeem them, reconcile all of these things to himself. Isaiah is championing that message that the servant is going to come and do all of these things. Which I just, I love that precise fact. And actually that's why uh, many of the early church fathers considered Isaiah quote the fifth gospel. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then it would add Isaiah in there as well. Just because of the overabundance of scriptures that it, that it relays. That bring forth and present the Messiah who we would know is Jesus. Chapter 55 here constitutes the last chapter of like a middle portion of Isaiah. So Isaiah 1 through 39. Is a, there's a very particular stream of thought that runs throughout all of those messages about the impending judgment that's going to come. Isaiah 40 through 55 is this middle portion in which it talks about the hope that they can have in exile. And then 56 through the end of the book talks about all of the ways in which this suffering servant is going to bring about renewal and restoration. And the hope they can have sort of post-exile so to speak. And so, and all of its facets It's tied to this decree of sin and judgment but also deliverance and hope. And here as he's addressing these what would be exiled Israelites his particular errand is to give God's people God-given hope. Yes, even hope that they could cling to while they were experiencing exile. While they would experience and undergo and, and suffer all of those severe, awful consequences of their sin. He was giving them recourse. Giving them some sort of respite that they could find in the words of God. He alludes, go to just chapter 52, just to situate us into this chapter he alludes to this future salvation that's coming uh, in chapter fifty two, where he also introduces us to this servant. Look at verse thirteen. The end of chapter fifty-two. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And many were astonished at thee, his visage. Visage, excuse me, was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And it goes on to talk about who they can expect to be this servant, which leads us right into perhaps the, the, the premier chapter, if you will, of Isaiah 53. This uh, amazingly uh, worshipful, gospel-centered chapter which lays before us the servant, and specifically the servant who suffers. Here, Isaiah is championing the message that, yes, the servant is going to come, and he's going to deal with you, and he's going to deal with you not as you expect him to, precisely because this servant is going to take your sorrows. Verse 3, 53 And then, after that glorious chapter, he goes and describes even more of the after effects in chapter 54, and about what this servant would come to do, which brings us precisely to chapter 55 in which i just get this picture that isaiah is almost he's been building crescendoing up to this point and now he's almost just shouting with elation about what this servant has come to do in the matters of redemption and reconciliation and restoration and he's reinforcing that they israel the ones who pushed god away and rejected him and rebelled against him they now yes have the certainty of repentance They can be confident in turning to the Lord precisely because of who their Lord is. He opens this chapter with that very striking exclamation. "Ho, everyone that thirsteth. It would be sort of akin to just saying, hey you, listen up. He's trying to grab their attention in a way that would strike them. I get the image of well, like a town crier on the street corner as is shouting extra extra read all about it and what precisely is does he want them to hear and read Well, none other than a very head-scratching, if you really think about it, invitation. Notice what he says. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, and come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. One of the other reasons why I was drawn to this particular chapter is this precise verse, because we read it and we just gloss over it because we, again, assume we know what it means, but stop and think about what he's saying. There's this invitation. An invitation to a feast is announced, and he says, Come ye, come to this table. However, this feast has a strange guest list, if you will. Because those who are addressed are precisely those who are desperate, they are thirsty, and they have no money. The the very weak and weary, the very poor and penniless people of exile Israel, they are the ones that are receiving this invitation. They do not have any reason for being there at this feast other than the fact that they had already been invited. They had no money. They had no status. They had nothing which should qualify them for being there other than the fact that they had received this invitation. And in fact, that's the only, if you will, qualification of us all is their need. They are needy and desperate. If you're needy and desperate, you can come to this feast. Is essentially what the invitation, the summons is reading like. Do you have a need that you cannot fill? Come here. Come to this table. Come to this place. They have nothing to offer. And it's a good thing too because this feast, I love how he says this. It comes without money and without price. Even if the guests had silver, something of value, it would be no use. Because this feast is offered for free. Come buy without price. Which is alone an interesting phrase. Because he's saying he's inviting them to come buy something without money and without price. Little hint. It's because someone has already bought it for them. But this message is not lost on Isaiah's audience. Because as he says in verse 2. He makes this reference. Why do ye spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth none. Hearken diligently unto me. And eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in the fatness. Essentially what he's saying. You've pilfered and squandered and wasted all of your silver and gold on things. Which could never satisfy. Never satiate your insatiable soul. And yet I have invited you to an elaborate feast. wherein every single need is met. That's sort of the the suggestion, the the hint uh, of why it is said it is offered water and bread and wine and milk. Every single need you could imagine is met here at this table. Come, you are invited. As he says in verse 3, come unto me. There's satisfaction uh, found only in me. And this is where we get to this wonderful point. Who is extending this invitation? It's God himself. Because notice verse 3 through 5. Incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that thou knew not that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. This is god 's promise now to exiled Israel. This is the message. Find your satisfaction in me because I am a God who makes covenants and I'm a God who keeps covenants. This, this to me, is the most striking fact of the Old Testament that every single time a covenant is broken, who's the one that keeps it? God does. (laughs) God's the covenant making and covenant keeping God, and this is true all the way through in the old, into the New Testament, where Jesus comes onto the scene and He says at the end in Luke twenty two that this is the new covenant in My blood. He's fulfilling all those things, all of the ways in which mankind has failed. He's keeping. And even here, Israel, who has rejected God, and now God is saying, I will make a covenant with you again. And specifically, an, an everlasting covenant. One that has no end. One that has no sort of ending point in sight. It's forever. It's permanent. And it would be nothing short Of the sure mercies of David. Which is an alarming phrase. You could examine if you had the time. Or perhaps the dedication. All of the ways in which Israel failed to live up to the Davidic standard. You go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you read of that wonderful promise that Jehovah gives to David. In that promise that he is going to build him a house. And all of the ways in which that is going to come about. And there's almost immediately after that David fails. 2 Samuel 7 is the promise and I think it's 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is that wretched story where David commits that sin with Bathsheba and then the further sin of murdering Uriah. There's a juxtaposition there of this wonderful promise and the ways in which man bumbles it and fumbles it up. He can't even keep it for longer than a few years. And it's already failed. It's already been left into the gutter, if you will. And you see that reference all throughout. This is sort of a, a little hint, a little sidebar into our King series. Every single time, you'll notice references back to David. He's the Davidic standard. And that promise there, how have we failed it? King after king arose to power and failed to walk in the ways of David. And here... What does he say? I'm going to make a covenant with you and all of the mercies of David will be fulfilled. They will be upheld. Why? Because of this one. This one who is the sure mercies of David, if you will. He has come to be a witness and a leader and a commander for these people. This is not, I would say, a reference to David, the person. It's a reference to the, quote, the mercies that would come through the Davidic promise, which is just a prophetic uh, sort of uh, shorthand way of talking about Jesus. Jesus is the sure mercies of David. He's the true and better son of David that Israel longed for. The true and better prophet, priest, and king that he, that Israel needed. He's the embodiment of all of these mercies. He, as it says in 2 Corinthians 1, the, the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen. So you see what this wonderful invitation is. It's an invitation to come unto the Holy One of Israel. The sure mercies of David. Jesus the Christ. And in him you will find satisfaction for your soul. This is what makes it so much more astonishing. That when Jesus is on the scene. You've got to notice this. Keep your finger there. Turn to John chapter 7. I'm not sure if this is a direct allusion or reference, if you will, back to Isaiah 55. But notice what Jesus says in John 7. Look at verse 37. Notice if this invitation sounds familiar. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He's almost, I would say, giving them a living demonstration of what Isaiah was prophesying about. I am the one. I'm the one who has living waters. And Isaiah would say in chapter 55, verse 5, this feast is not just for Israel proper. It's for all nations. Keep your finger there. Hold on just a second. (laughs) Isaiah 55, 5. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel. He's hinting at the fact that the belief in the Holy One of Israel allows other nations to come and be a part of these covenant promises just as well. Which, by the way, look at verse 38 of John 7. He, Jesus says, that believeth on me. As scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Water that satisfies, water that quenches, water that satiates. And it's about belief. Here Jesus is speaking, and yes, all the way back in Isaiah 55, he's saying essentially the same thing. Such as why where he gets to verse 6, you can almost see it. You can see it in Isaiah's words. Believe on this one. Seek ye the Lord, he says, while he may be found. There's a sense of urgency to his message. Almost as if he's saying, because of all that, because of this awesome feast and the way that it it doesn't uh, sort of uh, disallow anyone to come to it. Anyone who is in need, you are invited to come and find rest. Find in me the sure mercies of David. And anyone can do it so long as you believe. Seek the Lord, he says. This is Isaiah's words to Israel, pinpointing their very dire need to repent of all of their wicked ways, the atrocities and travesties that they had allowed to seep into not just their uh, political realm, but into their spiritual realm, into the house of worship. Repent of all that. Call upon this one. Seek the Lord. Notice verse 6 again. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will, get this, abundantly pardoned. Your translation may be different. Maybe yours has an even perhaps more apparent way of phrasing that. For with the Lord there is free forgiveness. (laughs) That's essentially what he's saying. That this feast, this river to which everyone has been invited to come to is this profuse, just overflowing, free-flowing river of absolution for precisely who? Verse 7, the wicked and the unrighteous man. (laughs) With God, there is abundant pardon for those, as he says, the wicked who forsake their way and the unrighteous man who forsakes his thoughts. This is a startling word. A very surprising message because it is so unlike us. It seems too good to be true. What is our default position? That those who do us wrong, they need justice. They need something that that reminds them of how wrong they are. They need something they need some sort of come up and some sort of censure dealt to them because of how they wronged me. Forgiveness. That's almost too dangerous. That's almost problematic to forgive someone. And yet, this is what God is offering. And another one of our initial reactions might be, as well, what's the catch? He hasn't said anything in the way that they have to do other than just stop running away from me. Stop running in the opposite direction and seek the Lord. That's really the picture of repentance. Because with this God is abundant pardon. What's the catch? What do I have to do? I know I've used this reference before, but I just think it's so apt. It's like those car commercials... We'll give you $10,000 for your clunky car. Just bring it onto the lot. And then the guy at the end reads faster than uh, than the auctioneers. All of the little terms and conditions that are in eight-point font at the bottom of the screen. You can't even read them. Then you find out that you have to fit a certain number of stipulations before that offer is true. And those stipulations are such that it basically disqualifies everyone. (laughs) This offer, this invitation has no fine print. No little stipulations that make you not one of the ones invited. It is for all who would believe. And this has been God's plan from before the foundation of the world. He has been planning and working it out that this would be how he reclaims the world. History is really that. It's a revelation of God's plan of forgiveness for people who have failed and fallen. And how would He do that throughout the whole course of history? That's what you're reading about. You want a little clue? Look at this verse. I just, I just love this. Look at verse 50, uh, chapter 51. Look at verse 22. You want to see a little intimate picture of the way God is going to forgive people that have rejected him? Look at this. Chapter 51 of Isaiah, verse 22. Thus saith the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people, behold... I have taken out of thine hand. The cup of trembling. Even the dregs. Of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more. Drink it again. Just stop right there. Think about what he is declaring. The cup of my fury. I have taken out of your hand. You will no more have to drink that. And why is that the case? Precisely because. This cup. Has been reserved for someone else. This cup of his fury is the precise one that the servant drinks for us. Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put, to him, put him to grief. And when, he, or excuse me, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed and shall, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The cup of fury is taken out of Israel's hand and put into the servants hands. You want to know an even more spectacular image of this? Let me just read it. Luke chapter 22. What does Jesus pray in the garden? Luke twenty-two forty-one. 41. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We get this amazing moment in which Jesus the Christ is here now accepting the will of his father to drink the cup of his father's fury for sin. The precise cup that you and I deserved to drink. And he takes it out of our hands. And instead the Christ drinks it. The Holy One of Israel drinks the Father's wrath, as it says in Isaiah 51, 22, to the dregs, to the very last drop. Instead, he hands you his mug of righteousness, if we can keep the metaphor. He exchanges cups with us. Because of this abundant Pardon. We can believe in it, have confidence in it, because the servant is punished for us. And that's what makes this invitation back in Isaiah 55 so astounding. We can buy without money because the price has already been paid. Jesus covers the tab for this feast before we even ever sit down to drink. So the feast comes without money, without price. Just come to the table and eat and drink and delight yourself in fatness, as the word said. In just abundant and profuse riches of blessings. And that's when we get to verse 8. God doesn't think like you and me. His thoughts and ways on the matter of forgiveness are, don't even come close to what our thoughts and ways on the matter of forgiveness is. We can never exhaust or, or try to even fathom how God thinks about forgiveness. they are so much higher than ours. Higher than the heavens are above the earth. So vast is his great love for us. Unlike us, he doesn't find it hard to forgive those who sin against him, who do him wrong. He's not reluctant or or slow to give out forgiveness in piecemeal and sort of really small, scant offerings. He doesn't wait to see if we are sorry enough before he gives and extends this forgiving hand. And he's not one to hold a grudge. This perhaps is one of the most hard things for, perhaps, I'll just speak for myself, for me to, to, to grasp. For the things done against me, and I want to hold on to them and cling to them, yet in the same way, God, what does he promise in Hebrews chapter 8, 12? That not only is he going to forgive our wrongdoing, but he's going to never again remember our sin. <laughs> The God who cannot forget chooses not to remember. Precisely because his ways and thoughts on forgiveness don't even, are so vast and high and above ours. He delights in showing mercy. It is his delight to do that. Micah chapter 7. Write these verses down. Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God? Like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity. And passeth by the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever. Why? Because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. And he will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths Of the sea. You see, this chapter is an invitation to repent. And by repenting, be made whole. And in that repenting, being very confident of this fact that this is a God who abundantly pardons and just like the rain that falls from heaven, so too does this forgiving word fall from a place that is not earth. And it transforms sinners into saints. I think that's the image of verses 10 through 13. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven. And returneth not thither but watereth the earth. And maketh it bring forth in bud. That it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. But it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that he shall not be cut off. His plans cannot fail. And his word of forgiving grace comes to people who do not deserve it. And it transforms their lives. Therefore, I read this chapter. And I read about how God's thoughts and ways are higher than mine. And I'm reminded that when you repent of your sin, you're not coaxing God to forgive you. You're not convincing them that you're sorry enough because you'll never be sorry enough for your sin. Repentance is just the acceptance that this forgiveness has already been extended to you in the person of Jesus, it's there. It's given to you for free without money, without price. It's the gift of Jesus to the world. It's the sure mercies of David in the form of a person hanging on a cross with nails in his hands and his feet and thorns making blood drip down his forehead. This is the sure mercy of David, the one who is the forgiveness of sins. Given to people who do not deserve forgiveness. It's the offer of the gospel. And it's the offer of the prophet Isaiah. Come ye to the waters. Come to this water. And find life everlasting. Find remission of sins. And this one who is the sure mercies of David, this holy one of Israel, this one who suffered in the stead of sinners. Oh, what a glorious word. This word of forgiveness. Maybe this morning, you're holding on to something that you can't forgive someone else in your life. You're holding a grudge. Perhaps these words might remind you of the ways in which God forgives you. Perhaps this morning, even more, perhaps urgently, you've never experienced the forgiving flow of Jesus' grace. Maybe today's that morning. Maybe this particular hour is that particular moment when you respond to this invitation, come ye that is thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you parched from your sins? Let me tell you about some everlasting life that comes from the one who offers water, living water. And his name is Jesus, the Christ, the Holy One of Israel. Let us pray.